There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the intimate. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) Hello and welcome back to Season 3 of The Pleasure Podcast. Thank you to all our listeners and guests who made the last two seasons possible. We're so happy and grateful that you're getting as much out of hearing from people's perspectives on pleasure, sexuality and education as we do. It's confirmed our belief that sharing stories is a powerful way to cultivate understanding, tolerance and ultimately make us more connected with ourselves and the world. And season three is not going to disappoint. We're kicking off with a woman who needs little introduction. She truly is the nation's sweetheart. And not just because she talks openly about bonking Jeff Goldblum with a piece of toast stuck to her bum on the screen. She is the recipient of so many accolades we'd take an hour to list them. So we'll introduce her as the Queen of Our Hearts, the leader of the good fight, the only person to win Academy Awards for both writing and acting. It's Dame Emma Thompson. We spoke to Emma about how to come back to our instincts when it comes to erotica and pleasure, the sex handbook she made her daughter, why it's important never to shame your sister if you catch her wanking, and resistance against being squashed into shapes that society wants you to be. Emma's astute ability to understand human behaviour is astonishing. At times she becomes our therapist, fit to rival Esther Perel. We hope this conversation inspires you, gets your brain buzzing, and helps you just a little to come back to what pleasure means to you. I took to sex when I was 15 and I was taken by my mother to a very old, she was 90, gynaecologist called Helena Wright, Dr. Helena Wright. And she had pioneered sex um, education and indeed the practice of taking birth control, the pill. And um, when I went to see her, I'll never forget it, this little old lady in a white coat said, what is the birth control pill for? And I said, it's to stop you getting pregnant. And she said, no, what's the birth control pill for? And I couldn't think of what she meant. So I said, I don't know what you're getting at. And she said, it is in order for human beings to have sex for pleasure. That is what it is for. Now, of course, it was co-opted by the patriarchy, who decided that that's a really great way of making women feel that they can be sexual available. And that's a fab thing. I mean, look at, don't even talk about Silicon Valley and what's going on there with the sort of, oh, sex parties. If you don't go, you're not cool. All that stuff. Sex has, since the sex revolution, has been used by a, as a weapon by the patriarchy. And we have to push back on that and say, take your fucking, your fucking anal sex fantasies and you're all of your fantasies actually about what women want to, and shove them up your own ass just take it away yeah. you know it's a disaster for our kids 
And it's a disaster for sex and sexuality, which is such a beautiful thing, and erotica and eroticism. These are beautiful, beautiful things. But if you don't use your instincts, you don't come to them with instincts that haven't been uh, deformed by expectation and by all the societal shapes that you're supposed to twist yourself into, then you don't really know which ones to trust. So that's why this conversation is so important. So people can go back to themselves and go, well, I'm not sure whether that instinct is right. One of the reasons that we wanted to chat um, initially was because of this brilliant handbook that you'd made about sex and emotion mm. for, for Gaia. We were wondering about, I mean, it's a very, it's an unusual thing to do. I was talking to my mum about it and she went, my goodness, what an unusual, what a brave thing to do. And I thought, is it, is it brave how we teach our daughters or our children about sex? Why, why is that a courageous thing? And I wondered what, and it is, but I wondered what it was that prompted you to do it. Oh, blind terror, you know, that she would get into situations where she felt obliged, where she felt pushed. I was frightened of the societal pressure on her and her generation. You know, young men thinking they've got to get their what's known as brown wings, that anal sex is supposed to be your first stage. Are you, and you think of Fleabag, of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's first episode, you know, it's about anal sex, which was never on the agenda when I was a girl. And personally, I've always felt the arsehole was you know, exclusively for waste disposal. So, so I was fascinated by that and I was also frightened of it for her. So for me, it was a kind of um, a roadmap. And it was all about the different places in which we feel things. And the fact that we feel things in our heads, we actually feel things in our heads, we feel things in our chests, in our stomachs, which we're learning about now, the stomachs are the second brain, and that's all utterly fascinating. We're very complicated, and of course in our loins. And everything about sex in our society has um, either been completely bastardised, or has been oversimplified, or worse still, has been rejected as wrong and dirty. In the handbook, um, I suppose I was trying to suggest to her gently, not sort of telling, but suggesting and showing that when three or more places in your body, your brain, your heart centre, your stomach and your loins all marry, then you're pretty safe. That's a safe space because each of those centres has different instincts. And you'll find that you might have a very strong instinct to have sex with somebody, but actually it's really not not the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, and often um, kissing is exactly what's needed and nothing else. Or even cuddling and nothing else. You have to be able to make these choices and, and know what your body is really saying to you. Because your body might go, oh, in, it's in the loins and in perhaps the heart area, you might go, I really fancy that person. And then you start talking to them and your brain goes, oh God, I'm so bored, I'm so bored. <gasps> and then you, then you have to deal with the, <laughs> the discussion between your brain going, I don't think so. And your body going, yeah, but he or she or they are so hot, please, please. That kind of discussion is, has never been given a space. You're right. It's so rare that we talk also about the different areas of the body which experience emotion and instinct and drive. Um, it makes me think, the way you describe it, makes me think of the chakras. It is the chakras, <laughs> when I really. see that, When I see those pictures of yeah. the different colours of the, on the head and the heart and the stomach mm. and the, the loins. There is this, as you say, sort of discordance, disconnect, um, 
challenge that you're getting from different parts of the body. Um, and you describe it in your um, uh, book as, or pam- is it pamphlet, leaflet? What would you describe it? It's a sort of little booklet with little gingerbread men where I've put all the feelings, you know, and 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 the borders around your body that you can allow some things in and, and, and good things in and bad things not in and all the ways in which we can protect ourselves because safe sex is, as you say, a really complex matter. It's not just about putting a condom on or making sure that you've got birth control and all of those things. It really struck me that actually you brought up your mum taking you at 15 to Helena Wright and I was fascinated thinking that actually you talked to your mum Mm -hmm. at that age and you were comfortable talking to your mum not entirely but um I I first of all talked to my wonderful cousin Eleanor who was I don't know whether you remember there was a theatre called The Players which was under the arches in the embankment players bar which used to be that where the late victorian joys would appear and the late victorian joys were people like my cousin eleanor who would get up and sing (laughs) with that sort of voice and a pair of bloomers on so i told her first who wouldn't um and um she said oh you must tell your mum she'll be fine and actually mum was fine. She was a little bewildered by my fascination and enthusiasm for sex because she had been brought up in Scotland by rather puritanical parents. Well, actually, that's unfair to say. My grandmother wasn't puritanical at all, but the system was very much so. So I was lucky. I was very lucky. I can't say she wasn't judgmental about it because she was, and who can blame her, really? She probably had the same worries as I did. Um, When I wrote Gaia, that booklet, you just worry, don't you? for your kids but actually there was really nothing to worry about I think I was very lucky but I was of that generation that came literally in between the sexual revolution that is to say the 60s and the the pill and all of that um, and AIDS I was free of the burden of worrying about getting pregnant and the burden of worrying about catching death I think I was told when I was little that giving myself pleasure was a bit iffy even if it wasn't actually wrong it was a little bit you know that term onanism and sort of oh self-regarding masturbatory again you know it's a derogatory term if someone's being masturbatory they're sort of just wanking themselves off because and it's oh gosh when you start to use the language you realize how violent it is how anti erotic it is, how anti-everything pleasurable it is. Masturbation is one of the ugliest words in the English language. Like you're spitting into a cup. Oh yes, it is. You know, it's just masturbation. It's just so aggressive. Yes. So the language is extremely important as well. And we need to find new words for these things. It seems a very Victorian thing to and I think Foucault was right. God, as if I quote Foucault, but I've just said that out loud. Yeah, um, well, but... well, you know, nice, nice one. I haven't read Foucault for 40 years and I didn't enjoy him much then. But yeah, go on. Yeah, but he was talking about how the Victorians ruined sex in the UK. Oh, did he? And he was, and he was talking about how the fact that we had attached this religious and cultural structure. So we'd had to turn words for sex into a sort of scientific institution rather than a sensual and erotic and... Yeah. Warm and fun and playful conversation. Indeed. Um, That's it. That's exactly what's happened. Yeah. What you're saying is absolutely true about my upbringing, which my upbringing and I lived in this street. So I've been here for 60 years. 
So I'm proper, you know, starting to be an old person, not in, I don't mean old in the sense of doddery, but I'm young and old at the same time in the sense that I've got the energy still to do what I want to do. But I also have a huge life to look back on and all the things that I've experienced. And because I'm impulsive, I've made lots of mistakes. So I'm quite wise after the fact. Um, so mistakes are your friends, of course. But when I was a child of about, I suppose, maybe six or seven, my sister, we shared a bedroom, and my sister found me masturbating um, on my front with my eyes closed. She didn't know what I was doing. She went to get my mum. I was I was away with the fairies. I was just lying there having a nice time. <laughs> and um, I opened my eyes and suddenly found my mother and my sister staring at me. And my sister was five and my mum was looking amused. And I looked at them and mum said, Sophie just wanted to know what you were doing. And I said, you were just having a good old fan scratch. <laughs> and I thought... At the time, I felt a bit funny, but I didn't feel funny for very long because she didn't shame me. Yeah, that's lovely. She did not shame me. And one of the things in your play, which was so, so important, was the response of your body to an orgasm that you had produced for yourself. You know, orgasms are incredible feelings, however long or short-lived they are. They're, they can be wonderful, wonderful feelings. And if you're able to do that for yourself, what an extraordinary gift. Mm. And the way you put it was so powerful and important mm. that, that this is something we can do for ourselves. And it's extremely healthy. It's very pleasurable. It's free. And it's not going to give you an STD unless you've just dipped your hands into somebody's <laughs> bum. You know, it's, you're, you're going to be fine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So then, as I was coming home from school for a long, long time, there was a kind of strange pawn shop. I guess it must have been a kind of dirty magazine shop or something. But I remember to tell you about this because it made me think of what kids are looking at now. But in the window, there was a picture of a man with a very angry face and a woman turned away with her head turned away and a grimace on her face and he had one breast clutched in his hand he was squeezing it really hard and it was a violent image but supposed to be titillating and I remember being so deeply disturbed by this and this was when I was uh, going to school proper school 11 12 years old and I think about what kids now see at a very young age on phones and go there's something really proper fucked up about this because what they're seeing is not representative of anything other than, you know, the use of women's bodies mostly. So, you know, we're, we're up against it and conversation eye to eye is absolutely the only way we can come to terms with a huge a machine that is bearing down on us, which is consumer capitalism, you know, not being able to get away from the things that we are supposed to have and like and use all the time. Talking of capitalism, I was thinking about how, I suppose, when we're thinking about masturbation, about that moment in the play, and, and working out about what works for you and your body, that can take time. It can take oh, time, yes. and um, really, you need to be able to afford yourself sort of a languid experience of exploration and not aiming for a goal. And there's something very anti-capitalist about it, because it's not about function, bam, go, go back to work and you're relieved. Um, it's about actually just taking time out of all of that. And who knows what the goal is, other than just purely for sheer pleasure, actually. I remember I used to talk about 
and, and you could pull me up on this, which is as it always should be, um, about almost uh, learning how to give someone an orgasm as if it's a rote Mm. Um, exercises and if I can learn to be good at it because I like to be good at things um, it, it's like a surgical procedure it's like you mm. know there is a set way of doing something mm. yes. um, and you've taught me actually a lot of it is about well you can achieve an end point in lots of different ways mm. and, yes. you, and it might not be to come actually no, and that might not be your end point or it might be a part point a part way point a sort of st- a stopping point um, oh but, absolutely the whole that whole thing is just I mean pleasure is time time I can remember having the most wonderful night with a boyfriend and we touched hands only. No, and it wasn't about deeply sexual experience, but it was about a deeply intimate experience. Um, and there, is so, there are so many demands on everybody's time. And it's true that, that to give yourself the space in which things arise, not to put you know, not to make a pun of it, um, you know, because of course it's not all about the male organ being such an obvious thing. That was another thing I did actually when Guy was very young. She came to me, she was about eight. She said, Mum, I've asked a lot of people about sex, what actually happens, and no one will tell me. Uh, will you tell me? I said, I remember where I was sitting. I remember I was sitting down and she came up to my head. She was the sort of same height as me sitting down. So she must have been about eight. I said, okay. Okay, here's the mechanics. And I just drew a picture and said, this is, the, and this is a bit alarming because it changes shape and it's a thing outside the body. And that's what happens. And she just looked at me and she just said, I knew you'd tell me the truth. As if the truth were just the worst thing anyone could ever have expressed, which of course at eight, it is. What a horrible idea. So Victorians, it's so true that I wrote a sketch when I was writing sketches about a woman coming back from her marriage bed, as it were, saying, you know, that she was very confused because her husband has shown her his previous and said, do you know what this is? And, and it starts to change shape and she's gone, I think it must be something. I've just, she's come to talk to her mother about it who can't, of course, say anything, which in turn was based on an Edith Wharton story which is about a young woman going back to see her mother and to challenge her mother and accuse her mother because her mother knowingly married her off to someone who she knew would be brutal. And in our present day world, the amount of brutality towards female sexuality is, it's terrible. So I've sat in African countries, Liberia, Ethiopia, talking to women whose experiences of FGM are very real, who've, who actually say, when we talk about pleasure, that, that that's not allowed. It's simply not allowed. So we're living in 2020 on an earth where many women, many, many millions of women, will not ever experience an orgasm, ever. They won't have sexual pleasure. So there's this very far edge of violence against female pleasure that is very real and absolutely alive in our world today and there's elements of it in our society as well so you know that's why I made her the handbook because I know about that stuff and I know it in very intimate detail 
slightly too intimate sometimes because it is utterly horrifying when you really go and talk to them. Yes. How do you gauge it though? Because how do you th- you know you hit you know all of this. Um, so what do you distill? into a booklet for a 12-year-old. I mean, I don't know how old she was when you gave her. I think she was 12. You don't... That, that's not to go into... That's not necessary at, at this point in time at all. But um, you go right back to the safe place and describe the safe place. And the unsafe place is that wrong feeling that you get that icky feeling that you get, which I'm sure you can both remember very clearly when someone's done something that's completely inappropriate, like the time when I was eight and the magician stuck his tongue in my mouth. That wasn't right. I read about this. He was about 60 or so. It was a buried memory as well. Wow. And that's the worst thing that happened to me when I was a kid. And when you think about what happens to folk, that's nothing. And that gave me a very nasty... Well, I mean, I suppressed it. I actually suppressed the memory. So... Being able to identify what really actually does feel good and be able to protest when part of it feels good but part of it feels wrong. All of these calibrations, which are complex and which we are really allowed to explore and need to learn about, but they do, as you so rightly say, take time. And you've got also got to be able to experiment and make mistakes with your body. It's your body. We make mistakes with it and go, well, I won't do that again. Yes. I won't be trying that one again. And not to be frightened, I suppose, of yeah. being somehow altered forever from it. Or if you are, not in a scarring way that you can't then get over. I was interested to hear you say that you're impulsive and got into situations which, you know, you learned lessons from. I mean, absolutely, I hear you because me too. Yeah. But... I suppose I had been warned over and over in my early teens because I started being sexual at a very young age, lost my virginity at 13 and, you know, was very sexual from a young age. Yes, so was I. what I was doing. No, it was very recreational and very joyful. Yeah. Very joyful. No, I hadn't, well, didn't feel ashamed about it at all. Yes, yeah. God, so extraordinary. I felt completely the opposite. I didn't lose my virginity until I was... 19 and even then it felt like just something I needed to deal with someone I didn't find attractive and uh, just because then you could have got it over with there's a hearing you that's th- an is, achievement is, is, thing isn't it yes that's blokes going oh got, got got to, oh, but, God, but also so I finally told myself that I was gay one awful thing was I remember getting myself drunk enough to approach a woman that I th- a girl that I thought was unattractive enough that she might say yes to kiss me and that's an awful story. And I recognise that being awful. But I also recognise me thinking, you're not an attractive person. You have to try and be like everyone else. Try and be with someone who might actually agree to be with you. Yes. And, and it's weird. But, the, but that voice when you're 13 or 14 is, is not the more you know, cultured, thoughtful, um, moral, one hopes, person now. I mean, I wouldn't suggest practising on someone. But, and I recognise how awful no, it sounds. No, but no, anyway, who doesn't was, sound awful at all. Yeah. You're struggling with all the things you'd been told were wrong. So you couldn't be you and you couldn't follow your instincts. Yeah. So that's what I mean. And it was By really the big, shape yeah. that you were forced into, which is, no, I'm something I'm not. I, I can't dare to be who I am. Your instincts just get very... It's the steering wheel, isn't it? Yeah. The instincts are the steering wheel. And so it's. I think what you say as well is terribly important that make these mistakes and then wait and give yourself time to come back to your steering wheel. Yes. Give yourself time to rebalance and go, well, that wasn't very comfortable, but I've, I, I I'm not quite sure why. Yes. 
so difficult when our society, and maybe things have changed a bit, which I don't know how much, will label you once you've made those mistakes? Oh, absolutely. I was labelled. I can remember having a conversation about sexuality with a journalist years and years ago when I was in my 20s. And the tabloids took this up and went with it and just, you know, went, they were just so prurient and twatty, like they are, and they still are. And I realised they suddenly turned into a sort of bunch of little old, very Christian people with knitting needles clacking away, going, oh, what are you doing? And I thought, oh my goodness, that's a common response to any discussion about the joy of sexuality and the abandon and the freedom and the exchange, the free exchange of these wonderful feelings that is such something so to be wished for devoutly, obviously, and, and isn't readily available when it really should be. It really should be because it's free and it's easy, but it has to be commercialised or it's been put into so many different categories. And we have to somehow, through these conversations, release it from these categories because it doesn't belong, it doesn't belong there. I've just had a bit of a light bulb moment actually. Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> from thinking about um, when I was, so 12, 13, I was so curious about bodies and intimacy, although I wouldn't have been able to know that that was the word. I was always asking my mum, what's sex like? What's breastfeeding like? Yes. What's, I wanted to know what the, experience, what the physical experience of things was like. And she would, bless her, try her very best to answer. It's relaxing. It's this. It's all whatever yes. it is. Um, <laughs> but I would be so cute. Relaxing. Uh, mm -mm. Not really. <laughs> anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, and, and so I, and I remember having a lot of baths with her, for example, not in a sexual way at all, no, but no, in an intimate yeah. sort of mm. mother-daughter way. And then having a, a boyfriend, a friend who was a boy, who then I wanted to have a bath with, because I wanted that same intimacy. Yes. And then I'm wanting to know, I don't know what touch was like. And, and I suppose, until recently, <laughs> possibly today, I, I still look at that person and go, gosh, was she a bit fucked up? Why was she, why was I at the age of 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, so keen to be, to be having these physical experiences? And, that, and funnily enough, as soon as people heard that I'd had a bath with a boy, they went, well, she's slag. Mm. And once I was given that label, mm. I fulfilled it. And I wasn't a slag and I'm not slut shaming at all, but I felt like, oh, okay, so that's who I am. So I have sex with boys then, so I do, I was given a label and I was sort of relieved to be told what I was because no yeah. one else was curious. And what you were was a writer and a poet. <laughs> that's what you are. And that's why from a very young age, because not, not everyone's like that. Some people are completely disinterested. But you're interested because you're interested in describing in poetry and in your work in life. You're a writer, actually. And you were a writer right from the get-go. The point is, that's a shape that you were put into. Yes. Which was nothing to do with you. Yes. Actually, it's just an outside shape, like for you, and Anne. Same thing, it's an outside shape, and you're squashed into it like you're some sort of weird human marshmallow that can just fit into these stupid definitions yes. of what it is to be a human being. Yes. All of these stupid, useless, empty definitions that are husks and need to be just thrown into the landfill. Yes. Looking back now, that that actually was joyful and, as you say, free and didn't need to be um, shamed. No. <laughs>
Or, or, or marked as X. Yes. Mm. It was just you having a go at something. Yes. And those explorations are, are, seem to be far more limited, or at least now photographed and documented. And everyone <laughs> seems to know everything about everyone yes. immediately. And I'm like, well, how do you know that when you make a mistake and everyone's amplifying it out there? Should we talk about that? Should we talk about a little bit about privacy and the importance of privacy? Mm. Because it seems to me anyway, as an old person, that privacy has now gone and that young people no longer have privacy because everything is documented. Now, that seems to me to change. It must change one's relationship with one's steering wheel in an instinctive steering wheel because one must, under such circumstances, constantly be self-censoring um, or at least you're controlling something. I would, that's how I presume you must behave. Why? Because you are in the public eye. Different thing, okay. Anand, different thing. Because if you've chosen a profession that creates a public persona, by my age, you've differentiated yourself from the public persona. You have yourself, your private person, and the public persona is like a kind of good thing that you just put stuff in. And, and that's a whole different thing. I'm... As it were, I live a private life. When it's private, it's literally completely private. No one sees me. People can barely ring me. You know, there's no pictures. There's no photographs. There's no Wi-Fi. So it, it's a completely private life. And within that, you know, definitely resides my erotic soul. Which makes me think that actually people are now... And by the way, we're probably all too old to speak about this. <laughs> like I think we, we are, yeah. Like, I mean, I, Gaia would be a very good person to yes. speak to about it because she yes. seems to me constantly to be on her screen. But it's that's where life's lived. And I feel that people are curating their lives and making their persona. I've got these uh, second cousins who are of that age and I see the photos of them and they're all always in and this is not I'm not saying this in a shaming way at all mm. it's just observing they're they're beautiful to mm. begin with but it's all legs and tiny you know shorts and crop tops and perfect poses and they have so many followers <laughs> it's unbelievable so because many. they record with the accepted beauty myth norm yes which actually is a sort of mimetic thing that we're all very keen on mimicking the kind of pinnacle people and all the pinnacle women are very thin. I think we've just been copying the rich for so long. Um, yeah, we're just like copying Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> Yes, oh, good and Lord. then buying Keep away things from, from the there. jade vaginal eggs. <laughs> yes. Well, oh, you've heard oh, about yeah. the candle, of course. Yeah, that's my just candle come out. smells like a vagina. Yeah, <laughs> I sent that to Bill Bailey. I knew he'd want one immediately. <laughs> and and that thinness is is which is part of our profession as well. But she's a businesswoman. Is also indirect kind of contravention of anything to do with pleasure, because a woman who has appetites is not acceptable viz Scarlett O'Hara and Gone With A Win no you've got to eat before you go to the party otherwise you'll look like a woman who has an appetite mm. so women who have appetites have always been mistrusted in our Christian society it may go differently in other societies yes. but in our world if someone who's greedy it might take some of the cakes from the boys mm -mm. might end up wanting to have their own way might end up with different ideas about where they belong, which is under and not 
at an equal level. So appetite has always been suspected. That's so, in, that's so interesting because I was going to ask actually, what is it, or to discuss, what is it about pleasure that is so radical and revolutionary that it must be squashed and suppressed and kept away from women? What is it? And actually, if you make that analogy, if it is about underpinning, underlining that the idea that a woman with appetite, with desires, it might be somebody to rip the rug out from under the ruling whoever at the time, well, that makes a lot of sense then, doesn't it? Because they are radical. Mm. So everything about women's appetite, sexual um, appetite for food, appetite for experience, appetite must be suppressed because otherwise we will become uncontrollable and that can't happen. Mm. Do you think things are changing? Yeah, they are changing, absolutely. They're definitely changing. We're having this conversation, which is an enormous change from even 100 years ago, although many women were talking about these things in very radical ways hundreds of years ago, actually. But um, they are changing, but it's slow and it's extremely uneven depending on where you are. We have to keep reminding ourselves that human progress is not linear in, any, in the same way as one human being's process is not linear. We can go thundering backwards in terms of our understanding of ourselves and what we need, if we don't keep talking mm -hmm. and communicating mm -hmm. and squashing repression of any kind when it comes up and saying, that's not acceptable. Yes, yes. So this conversation is uh, a political act. It's very important. This is a conversation I would never want to have when I was younger. I would be too shy. I wouldn't have the words to speak about. I wouldn't want to talk about myself. I wouldn't want to be seen as someone who might talk like that because I didn't want to step out of line. I didn't want to be seen as other. Well, it's interesting you should say that because of what you were saying, Emma, about the ick and about no and about trusting your instincts. And I suppose a lot of our upbringings, which is about, as you say, not wanting to be other, not wanting to rock, rock the boat, not wanting to say no, actually, mm. and wanting to be compliant and amenable and saying yes, that we so often uh, tell ourselves not to listen to the ick feeling in order to comply, that you lose the ability, actually, to be able to tell the difference between what feels right and what feels wrong. Mm. So I think the conversation, talking about conversation and communication, I do think that needs to come back into, the, into our bedrooms as well as a political act to be able to go actually no I, I that's not even if it's with you know whether we, you're, we're talking casual sex we're talking long-term partners we're talking what, mm. whatever um I feel like we need we need to be able to start just to speak in the room I, I was chatting to my husband this morning about how he felt for a long time that um that really you have to compartmentalize body and mind so that in because he's a very cerebral guy was never very sporty growing up so teachers would say to him sports not for you the books are for you mm. and it took a long time for him to start to use his now he you know goes to the gym constantly he's got a whipcord body he's got a he's got a hat bad um, <laughs> but 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 it took a long time for him to be able to like inhabit it mm. um and, and that happens in the bedroom as well. You know, actually, this is a physical activity um, and we won't talk about it. <laughs> and to be able to start, even, you know, as, as loving partners who have been together for a long time. Yeah. And only now, 10 years after having been together, have we started to be able to actually have a conversation about, you know what, that that's, doesn't feel very good. <laughs> or can we try this? Or <laughs> whatever it might be. But just starting to hook in with feelings. And obviously, that's not as strong as like going, no. 
I don't want to this to happen with this person I don't know very well or I do know but it's inappropriate it's a very different situation I'm describing but I think that even those small change of trajectories is quite important huge mm. and in those conversations which are about subtlety yes subtlety is another thing we must recognize that all human beings are subtle we are subtle and complicated that's not what systems want our systems want us to be simple as possible our systems give us shapes that we must fit into because then we can be organized and accounted for and repressed, actually, a lot of the time, whether we're women, whether we're gay, whether whatever. Um, so our systems don't serve us very well emotionally, not at all, actually. And it's about time we introduced the subtlety of our emotions and our instincts into our systems. And we will not survive as a species if we don't do that. And that's what the climate change crisis is all about. And interestingly, there's been a lot of research on the fact that some men who are deeply involved in the sort of assertive, aggressive, patriarchal version of maleness, which is what I would call toxicity, the toxic male, um, find if they express concern about the planet and uh, a desire to help to save the planet, they will be seen as gay in all the bad versions of that mm. and isn't that interesting that in fact to care. evince that to care is just not blo it's not blokey it's weakness it's, it's weakness it's, it's weakness it's the excision of the feminine in your personality and the fact that we cannot accept or we have created systems in which we cannot accept that all human emotion is contained in every human being and all human qualities are contained in every human being. And we have access to all of those things, but we are constantly told that we are not allowed access to this or to that thing. And that is how we are deformed by our systems. And this is all instinct and it all relates to sex, it relates to everything. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. quote Sarah Pascoe's phrase, well, she talks about it in her book, I don't think she coined it, mm. but erotic capital. I was wondering whether you feel that as you've gotten older, the way that you've been asked to present um, female sexuality has changed. Well, I've never been a pinnacle woman or Gwyneth Paltrow type, so um, I didn't ever fit the norms that were are generally required 
to become a sexually castable person. Mm. I mean, if we were talking Hollywood or even here, the profoundly prescriptive and sexist responses to women's shapes and who they were, and um, I, I, in a sense, was outside that a little bit because I've always been a character actor. Did that feel like a relief at all? Oh, yes. But interestingly, it felt like a relief, but also if I received a script that described the character that I was going to go up for as beautiful, I wouldn't go up for the role. Because I just go, well, that's not for me, so I won't do that. So I was both relieved by it, but also oppressed by it, of course. So yes, as you get older, you're relieved of all of that, but I haven't had the same kind of trajectory as somebody like Michelle Pfeiffer, which must be very hard when you're considered a great screen beauty and then to see that drifting away, I don't notice it really. Yeah. But that's because I've done other things and because you know, I have a very political response to it, mm. which is a kind of energy in itself. Sarah's phrase, erotic capital, is very good, but she would always have had that, whereas I never did. I find, it so, I find it strange to hear that because you're... <laughs> Because uh, you are so beautiful. It's perceptual, though. It's self-perception, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's self-perception, yeah. yes. And, and perhaps also self-protection. Um, mm-hmm. Because you want to go, well, I don't want to feel that. So I'll, I, I will be proud and I will reject that naming mm. ceremony. Um, I, mean, I just want to know about sort of the middle phase of, 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 you know, of your life in terms mm. of, what sort of how menopause was for you. I've always wanted to write, I think we should write a sitcom about the menopause yes. at some point. That, that would be very, very interesting. For me, like my mum, I didn't really notice it very much. I had the occasional hot flush which I found at night, which I found fascinating because I just thought, that's a tremendous amount of energy. <laughs> Look at all that heat. It's quite extraordinary. We should harness that in some way. (laughs) I feel like I could power the Chrysler building right now. Um, So that was interesting. I have no female hormones now. None. No hormones. And I mean, I can't say I miss them. But of course, afterwards, you're free of so much. And you've become something else. Can you imagine? No more periods. Is no that, more is that thinking. the real relief? Well, I mean, I didn't feel relief about it because I didn't need to have periods any, anymore because I'd had my baby and my family was built, the family that I wanted. But it is a great big thing to stop. So, the, so there are no cycles happening anymore. I, I'm so a slave to my estrogen yes <laughs> and I have very short fast cycles of three weeks ah. and so I feel I'm constantly in the yeah, middle yeah. of the cycle you are and I can't imagine not being at a point in a cycle no it I sounds don't utterly have... exhausting it is exhausting especially yours mm. and again this is a whole other area the female reproductive system and female hormones and male hormones the hormones which are one of our most powerful things and one of our subtlest things. So they are at the same time massively powerful and it's massively subtle, which is a sort of oxymoron in a way. You can't think, well, why, how can something really, something really powerful is a big, because that's how we think of the world, because that's the patriarchal view of power is, you know, it's the Putin version of power, power. But actually real power is unbelievably subtle and hormones are subtle 
you know, thyroxin, subtle, subtle, the things that the pancreas delivers, subtle adrenaline, subtle, but so powerful. What it does to us, so powerful. But the actual injection, the actual amount, it's, it, it, that, those, those things to me are infinitely fascinating because they can knock you out faster than any boxer and it's just your body and it's this understanding of our power and our subtlety that I think is missing from all of our mythologies that I think these conversations are so useful to bring up and help people to think about in what ways am I feeling powerful now? What is this subtle thing that is happening to me that is making me feel such enormous change? And it's what you were talking a little bit about pain as well, um, earlier mm. on about pain and sadness. Mm. And for me, during certain periods of the cycle, there is great pain and sadness. Yes. And I don't know, akin to depression in many ways. Yes, absolutely. A- and to be able to think about, well, okay, mm. let's not try and ignore that no. or repress it or be no. ashamed of it. No. How do I harness it? I'm going to no. use it in my writing. I'm going to use it to access X, Y, Z. And to be taught to harness, welcome in <laughs> some of those emotions and feelings. Very different if people have endometriosis, etc. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's completely other. But when it's hormonal which feels like it's changing your personality, mm. um, but trying to u- to use it rather yes. than be ashamed or be seen as hysterical or a loose cannon or whatever. Well, which is what we're told we are. So again, that's an external thing coming in and your borderline, your borders, which as you get older, you learn to calibrate very finely. Your borders say, no, I'm not taking that. No, I'm not going to. No, no, I'm not. And also your internal borders because your pers- your superego, the, the punitive voice in your head, which everyone has, saying that's stupid you're stupid this is stupid that's wrong that's wrong which isn't the only comes from outside it's also something I think that's inside humans I mean I don't know it's difficult to tell you'd have to do such a huge (laughs) you'd have to undo so many things to find out whether it comes from outside but let us say it is in everyone and you have to learn to be able to accept the voice and say um you're not what I need right now and you're going to have to be quiet. I'm so sorry, but that's not appropriate. So in a sense, I have a political relationship with my own ego. Yeah. I said, that's not appropriate. I'm not that voice, that you're that tone of voice you've just taken with me about the fact that I, whatever it is, doesn't matter, um, is not appropriate and I will not have it. And when you take those decisions it's extraordinary what you can shut up our friend jess butcher calls it shit fm (laughs) oh i'm tuned into that (laughs) oh we're all tuned into that i bet you are too Anna. mine's got a lot better recently really good good. Um, i've been going to therapy which has been very helpful um, helpful. instead of dealing with the initial stuff which is like firefighting for the first six months or so you then actually try and start doing the work and i specifically switched off my emotional response to things so part of that was being a young, uh, you know, growing up an Asian boy, gay person. Asian gay person. Um, and then it was uh, actually at, w- at work does it to me. And I recognize in some ways my work damages me um, because I'm naturally, I think, quite an open, giving, caring person. But if you want that from me in 10 minute aliquots 40 times a day, mm-hmm. I can't deal with all of that emotion. Mm. There was a very useful um, distinction that was made to me a few years ago by the great Mike Nichols. He said, people are either porous or metallic. 
if you think about it for a moment, it's very useful. You're porous. We are all porous um, for all the obvious reasons. And I'm sure that you can immediately think of a few people you know who are metallic. <laughs> so um, when in Guy's little handbook, you know, around the little gingerbread person, because the people are genderless, the feelings are in colours and, you know, the icky feelings are sort of grey because the icky feeling leads to depression because the icky feeling is shame, actually. And shame is probably, of all human emotions, the most prevalent and the most damaging. Shame and guilt. Remorse is different because that's something you can do something about. I feel remorse about something I've done. I can express an apology or I can do something about it. Shame. Anna Gadsby writes very beautifully about shame, brilliantly yeah. about shame. Yeah. And I she describes her shame. childhood. She, she said, I was a, soaked in shame as a child. And you can't make that better because the childhood experience is so important, which is why I'm so grateful to my mother for not shaming me. And for not, whilst I did have to deal with certain moments of, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I don't think that I ever had to deal with what Hannah's describing, which I think many people have to deal with. So around you, around the gingerbread figure is a dotted line, as it were, a hyphenated line, which is the border that you put around your emotional self that allows good things to come in and that rejects too much negativity because you know you'll be receiving a tremendous number of what the therapists well in fact the psychoanalysts call projections and doctors perceive them more than anyone you know so it's hardly surprising that doctors often drink and self-medicate in all kinds of ways because it's a hugely difficult profession and because it's been enshrined in science and because science has been enshrined in not feeling which young scientists will tell you is rubbish, that science is all about passion and poetry. Again, this is about systems we've created that are not serving us because they don't recognise the human subtlety um, and the sort of inspirational human complexity, which is what we're going to have to really build on now and explore now more. Very hard to tell a difference sometimes, I think, between shame and remorse or not to welcome in shame as a sort of, as a, in a punitive way, I deserve it, I deserve it. If I feel the shame, then somehow I'm paying for, for what I've done or what I am. I think it's quite hard sometimes, again, about subtlety to tell the difference between, between what is Do useful. you mean shame and remorse or shame and guilt? Remorse is, I've done something terrible I can make amends for. Shame and guilt are often directed at the self for no good reason. Yes. They're connected to acts that are not wrong. Yes. They're connected to being or ways of being that are not wrong. Yes. But they have been described as such by the outside world. This is the problem. Yes. So we're up against it, you know, which is why all of these discussions, the more we talk about them, the more enlightened we become, the better able we are to create these useful boundaries yes. within and without. Yes. I think this podcast has made a massive difference. To, well, to the way I think about the world, the way I think about people in general. Yeah. I'm much kinder. 
often you, you pigeonhole people you go well that's the diagnosis and you know you listen to a story and you go right you jump to a conclusion quite rapidly whereas this has taught me to give a bit more space um, but also the people that we are I think are probably slightly different uh, in the ways I, the way I behave with my partner is different mm. um, and much more joyful and playful than it was yes mm. me too mm. far more joyful and playful mm. and mm. it makes me think about my dad wrote a porno when you talk about that scene in the tall guy yes um, with Jeff Goldblum and that scene that fabulously joyful scene the sex which scene. I then yeah. saw and I mean I laughed so much <laughs> there are moments in that where I'm thinking but how is they even that doesn't how are they <laughs> and it's all us there were only bloody stand-ins like and love bloody actually no it was us yes. every three two days nude <laughs> toe stuck to our asses. <laughs> how is it to be asked to do that though well one expects to be asked to do that okay as a, in our profession and that it's i mean of um it's a very tender thing to do but it's God, we were scared. Yes. Both of us, very scared. And did you communicate that to each other? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, we, we, you have to be very brave to take mm. your clothes off in front of a crew and you have to be very, very courageous. But you also have to be very... Um, you've got to be protected and it's much better now in our profession because... You know, 10 years ago when people were just starting off in television, so take your clothes off girls um mostly um and they go well i better had just better do it i feel icky about this i don't feel right about it and the harvey weinstein story is absolutely key in this constant negotiation we have to have with our feelings our instincts and things that we may desire and the ways in which they've been used to punish people whilst he's on trial there are lawyers are saying these women wanted careers from him so that's why they you know and you go well that's um just so punitively wrong there are no words but you might think to yourself oh if you're in a situation where someone who's very powerful in your world wants something from you and you feel as though you're going to get something in return well what's that negotiation about where does it take place? How do you make that decision? And actually, certainly in the Weinstein situation, there's no, you're, that's coercion, full stop. But there are, there are subtle versions of deals that one will make with oneself, I'm sure, in all sorts of situations. Not necessarily really on a sexual level, but in, even in a conversation, you might, somebody might say something, you think, am I going to fight that fight right now? Am I going to do that? How do I feel about that? Will I walk away from that and feel bad? I think the nuance I meant was not the nuance of, of coercion or not, was the nuance of the, of the deals you make with yourself, the bartering you do with yourself to either make the situation which you hate being in functional so you can actually get through that day and the stories you tell yourself about why you did it, whether that story is true or not, or is it just, if it's just for, to allow you to move on to the next stage. And nuance is right. So, so, so on the one end of that scale of judgment is you're in a situation with your partner who has just done something you don't like or you need to tell them something and you're thinking, I wonder if that was a bit mistimed. And on the other end of that same scale is I'm going to do something I really know I don't want to do 
because it's expected of me. So I suppose that's the nuance of compromise and self-knowledge. And and, and one will feed the, the other, I, think, I, I feel, as well. Yes. So, for example, for quite a long time in my private life, I felt very resentful and angry mm-hmm. because I had allowed so many things to happen in more public life or being nude on stage very early on twice actually my two jobs back to back Mm. nude um at the beginning of my career and Mm. feeling actually it wasn't handled necessarily always particularly well and actually that fed into my private life suddenly Mm. I actually there was not up for nuance or negotiation because I was so furious at Mm. having been allowed things to have been taken advantage of there that I just directed all that energy in my private mm. life, mm. which actually wasn't that helpful. I was fighting the wrong battle. It, you're you're it, fighting the right battle in the wrong place. Yes, yes. That's the point. Yeah. And that's really a fantastic thing to be aware of, of, you know, where do these things end up? Which is why a constant communication with your instincts in as honest and accepting a way as you can will prevent that from happening. You know, example, two, two examples... Um, Side to side, my friend who was felt up on the tube said the worst thing was that she didn't do anything about it and it made her feel ashamed. And in fact, she had nothing to be ashamed about. Someone had done her wrong. Someone had abused her on the tube and she was the one who ended up feeling bad about it, which is where I think shame is useless to us, useless and destructive. And on the literally the opposite thing was when I was about to be taken advantage of at the age of 20 or something by somebody, um, a much older man who reached towards me to put his hand down my shirt and I just grabbed his wrist and said, I think you're taking advantage. And immediately he kind of took his hand or stopped, you know, because he knew he was taking advantage. He knew. So as soon as I described it, as soon as I'd used the words taking advantage, his shame instinct kicked in, stopped him from doing it and protected me from my own feelings of shame. It's a hugely powerful thing to be able to say no in the right way. Yes. But did he lash out to you? Because obviously no, sometimes when people feel shame themselves, they mm. lash out to the other person. Absolutely. That, I mean, that is also a and possibility. that's what makes people worry, doesn't it? Yes, about absolutely. actually going, I didn't want to stop that because he, he or they were bigger than me or, mm. or there are other reasons. I, I knew he wasn't going to hit me or get violent. I knew he was someone who was just trying it on. Mm. So again, we learn. But, you know, if you've had an experience where you've said no and no one's listened, then as you do as a child, you're in deep shit later on. As you know, psychologically, it's very difficult to go back on that. But going back to something else you said earlier, it is extremely important that we are not defined by the terrible experiences we go through because they can be metabolised. So one of my best friends, a great, great, extraordinary woman, experienced trafficking in the worst possible way. I mean a story that just curls your hair. And someone who, through this long process of therapeutic process and storytelling, and is now a happily married woman who has completely survived. But she's had to put those experiences in a particular place. As I was describing before, the public persona. And it's very useful, I think, to think of yourself as a house or a mansion or a place in which there are rooms in which you can actually put stuff and visit it when necessary. You don't have to carry everything around all the time. You can have a house that you can leave. Just leave that stuff there. 
I think some people feel that you should f- not force, but that people should immediately talk about something bad that's happened to them. And it's just that some people react really well to that, being able to express what happened, and others find that really challenging and really damaging to have to express that harm that was happened to them. And they'll park it for now. And yeah. you, you, like you did, you suppressed that magician. Um, you, know, you might suppress it for a while. It may come back, but it might not. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and people, you know, we've had some people who have been abused in various ways, and they go, "I don't, I don't feel I was abused." You know, actually, that was just something I have dealt with, mm. and I do not see myself as an abused person. Mm. But we are infinitely various. I mean, everything we're talking about goes back to the same thing. We are not allowed to be as complicated as we are, or as subtle as we are, or as different as we are. We've got to fit, because that's how we can be sold to, and sold to one another. Which is why stories, I think, and conversation is so important, because yeah. we start to go, oh, this subtlety, or that nuance, or mm. that person, oh, me too, or completely different to me. or And so suddenly the palette widens and our minds and uh, viewpoints expand. Yeah. On the converse though, when we are sold the repeated diet of the same story, so yeah. we're told that romantic love is achieved yeah. linearly. Mm. You don't have 10 years later where the prince is you know, the princess terribly pissed off now. Yeah. Um, and no one's having sex anymore. <laughs> and no one's having sex anymore. <laughs> it's so true. And that's the thing about the liminal experience right at the beginning, where yes. you know, your dopamine is firing beyond anything else. Yeah. And you, can't, you, you really can't even... Um, well, it's a bit like when a baby's born. You know, you you can't tell the difference between you and the other person. Mm. I mean, it's bliss. It's the best drug on earth. Mm. Let's face it. And then the blinkers fall off, and you recognise that they park in bed or they wee on the seat and that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it's not. You, you know, they're for? not even blinkers. It's just a condition of human existence that when those boundaries no longer exist, when you fall in love those boundaries melt and they melt for a particular time and then they come back together because you're a human being and then you have to negotiate the boundary which wasn't there well it just wasn't there that's what's so confusing about it and why we keep on going back to it again and again and again but there are so many other stories and we need to start telling them thank you for listening to the pleasure podcast If you enjoyed this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and gives the series a boost. Give us five stars, you lovely lad. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. pleasure.